Greetings from Leicester. Yeah, I was preaching there this morning and, and yesterday, and then uh, a bit of traffic on the M5, but also, my bad, I thought it was a six, six o'clock start, so that's just me not reading the small print, so I would have been in, in good time. Um, listen, I, th I thought I'd show a few pictures to give, give, give a bit of context. I look out, see some good buddies here, some of friends know fully the, the context that these verses come from, but others, you haven't got a clue. And uh, obviously, one's place of work provides context for how one shares the message. And the message is very powerful. It's a gr I love that I've been given this passage in your sermon series. We come to 2 Corinthians 5, so if you want to turn to that, that's what we'll be looking at. It was, you know, sometimes you're given sort of really difficult texts, and th this was like uh, red meat for me. It's just, it's a fabulous text in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5. But by means of context, uh, I, I spent 20 years before coming here in Burundi, Central Africa, next one. Um, that's where it is, if you didn't know where it was. It's, it's still the hungriest and the poorest country in the world. I went out there in 1998. Uh, I lived expecting to die. People tried to kill me. People I care about were killed. It was very intense. It still is intense in a different way. It's not as dangerous. Uh, I was out there last month. I go there on a regular basis now, and we run our charity with fabulous local leaders out there that um, are doing a cracking job. Uh, in terms of uh, why do I show that picture? Mainly because it gives a picture, it shows my daughter, and look at her with a sort of facial hair issue. Thankfully, it's only fake. Um, but she is named after the next one. And I never get tired of telling this story, and there's, there's a, a, a twist to it. So I would have shared this, um, I don't know when I last preached here, but uh, a few years back. Um, that girl, I held her in 1997 and heard her story. And her story was that her, her mother had given birth to her and thrown her away down a toilet. And the next person going to the loo at the university hospital saw this piece of flesh moving down there and reached down, picked her, her out of the turd, and she was still alive. And they, they, they clean her off. The lady cleaned her off, got poo on herself in the process, fed her through a straw like a little bird. She weighed just a couple of pounds. She was alive. Um, and next one, look at her 18 years later. I mean, a stunning young lady. Next one, she ended up being our babysitter. And the reason I tell the story is my friend who adopted her gave her the, the most beautiful name for me, uh, my favorite girl's name. And also, it was a name that completely made sense to the start of her life. And when, so when I married my wife, Lizzie, I said, if we are ever blessed with a daughter, I want to name her after this lady. So, so little white one is named after big black one in that picture. They share the same name, and that is Grace. And I love that name. Any Graces in the house? Yeah? Brilliant. And why? Why? Because Grace... The start of Big Grace's life is a picture of the gospel, that she was down there separated, a vast chasm. She couldn't crawl out by herself. Help had to come from outside, and help did come from outside. And similarly, we are separated from God. We can't, we can't do it on our own. We're, we stink in different ways. We've all messed up. But help does come from outside. Jesus reached God with flesh on. That's what Jesus is, isn't it? He's the incarnation. He reaches down. He picks us up. He cleans us off. And this evening, he says to each one of us, you're beautiful. That's my daughter. That's my, that's my son. I love you. How much does he love us? Arms wide on the cross. That's how much. It's not cheap grace. Very costly grace, but it's amazing grace. And next one, I love it that we help her get a distinction in her degree. And in America, she comes back. Next one works for me in, in social media for a couple of years. And the, the latest incarnation of a, a chapter for her, next one, is of her doing a master's in counseling at, uh, at Newcastle University from the pit of the toilet. And I just love that because that's the God of the impossible, isn't it? And that's what grace does. Well, that's, the, that's what we can connect into. If you understand, I think I'm probably most of us already get that this evening. That, but you might have come on with your mate and think, what's this Jesus stuff all about? It, that's what it's about. 
It's about rescue. It's about costly love. It's about your filth, your shame, your condemnation, your guilt, your inadequacies being wiped away. And it's amazing, and it's a complete game change. And if you don't know that yet, by the end of tonight, uh, nail the deal. Next one. I, I would have brought some books, but my wife literally dropped me off because I, I was too late and I'd sold out this morning. But um, if you wanted to get these books, these are books that just, you know, if you resonate with the heartbeat, which I hope all of you do, uh, it's like how far is too far when Jesus went, died, went that far for us on the cross to die for us. And he didn't die for us to be nice, comfortable people in Bath. And that's largely what people are living out, isn't it? You know, the, the, the idol of comfort in our culture is quite an extreme one. And, uh, you know, Jesus is about so much more than that. And so, yeah, I hope these verses, they're, they're very relevant and they'll stir us this evening. Next one. Keep going. That's a devotional. And uh, just in terms of context, again, I talk about the hungriest and the poorest country in the world. 56% malnourishment. You can't get that statistic, really. But this picture fleshes it out, literally. because that, And most of us are, are white here, so we can kind of relate maybe more to that little white girl. And she's She's uh, four years old in that picture. My Canadian friend's daughter, Alma, she's four years old. The girl in the middle, she's four years old. And how does that make you feel? That makes me two things. Angry, because that is wrong. And it makes me weep. Sadness. Compassion. Compati to suffer with. And I think we're meant to experience those emotions. I mean, if, I, if Tim winds me up and I smash him in the face, that's not a good outworking of anger. That's, that's bad. But actually being angry in itself is not necessarily bad, is it at all? It could be the heartbeat of God. Jesus, when he saw the misuse of his father's house, the temple, he got angry. And there's stuff, systemic stuff in our, in our society that we are meant to be God's redemptive agents of transformation to change. And all it takes for good people, for, for evil to prosper, quoting uh, Edmund Burke, all it takes for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing. And there's a lot of good people doing nothing. And I'm not saying that's us, you, but be challenged if it is. Um, so that makes me angry and it makes me sad. And pick a fight. I say pick a fight on something. All of us as, as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, like get involved in something, get our hands dirty. That is what incarnation is. And for me, I suppose my life work has been picking a fight in that country and fighting systemic injustice and speaking out for those that can't speak for themselves and battling against corruption, modeling something different, raising up a new generation, marching to the beat of a different drum, that sort of stuff. Next one. Um, so we've got lots of crazy stories, which is not the agenda, but it will stir faith. Um, so, and again, we do loads of crazy evangelism out there. Next one. Um, and so any Acts of the Apostles miracle, I can pretty much give an equivalent from our work out there. But uh, in this case, um, so for 18 years, I've been out there 20 years, living there 20 years, been back in Bath four years now, uh, and making visits uh, for three or four times a year. Um, but for 18 years, each summer for two weeks, so 14 days, 18 times 14 days, times an average of 700 evangelists each year, times eight hours a day. That's a lot of intentional outreach, isn't it? We've seen over 200,000 people come to Jesus to, in that activity. And loads of these stories. So this is a witch doctor. Our guys showed up in a village. He started doing his jujus, his witchcrafty stuff, and they were... You know, you, you live in fear of the witch doctor in general, unless you know your authority in Christ. And so... Um, that's what our team knew. They knew that they had a, a greater power, if you like. So he started doing his juju stuff, and then they said, Mizina ya Yesu, in Jesus' name, and he was slain. He fell down on the power of God. He sort of came to a few minutes later. He's like, oh, could you come out in two days? That's two days later. He'd assembled the whole village, because when the witch doctor says jump, you jump. And so the whole village had come together. 
he burnt his charms publicly there, submitting to the highest power of the preaching of the gospel. He, 50 people in that village gave their lives to Christ. I love these stories. Next one. This is Louis. I didn't see him last month, but I went past his village. And what I love about stories is that you can't deny stories. You could come out. I'm going out in February if you want to join me. You can come out and meet Louis. So Louis was blind Bartimaeus. Two years ago, he was blind. He was a beggar on the street. He was a widower, so his wife had died. His kids had abandoned him. He was a total loser in in the eyes of the world, a beggar on the street. And uh, he came on our outreach. (laughs) He was healed. You can't deny a story. So I don't know how many people came to faith on the back of seeing blind loser Louis now restored. And then we gave him last Christmas, we gave him some pigs to start business to help lift him out, empower him out of poverty. He's found some wrinkly old babe to get married to. He, he's got a smile on his face. The gospel changes everything. I love that. Next one is Francine. And remember in the Bible, the lady that was bleeding and she had the courage, the incredible courage to reach through the busy, hectic crowd and touch Jesus. Power came out from him. Who touched me? It was me. I honor you, Lord. I honor you, precious you know, lady, for, for taking that risk being being brave enough and that was Francine she came on an outreach her husband had left her because he couldn't have sex with her anymore and uh, so she was desperate she came on an outreach she was healed she rushed home she saw her husband you're coming home with me baby and uh, he's come to faith on the back of that miracle and uh, hopefully things are going really well uh, every level for them next one uh, that's just maybe last miracle story, but uh, this is, you know, so one of our great young leaders, look at him, skinny, waffer, rake thin, because he's so hungry for God, and he spends so much time fasting, and, uh, you know, I did several years of theological training, but I must have got a lot of stuff that went in, but there's only one actual line that I can remember, and it was this, how much do you want of God, because no one has less of God than they want I think that is so powerful. And Innocent illustrates that because he's so hungry for God, hence being so skinny. But the Lord has entrusted him through the, going to the secret place in prayer with the gift of healing, which is a very powerful gift. And so lots of stories he's got. But, you know, on one of our outreaches again, these two mute ladies came and, you know, can you pray for us? So he took them around the back and he took them into the side room of the church. And he said, Lord, I am willing to pray for three days and not leave this room if only you will have mercy on um, these precious ladies. And he didn't have to wait three days. After 10 minutes, they started speaking. And he took them around the corner. This is a Sunday just after the main service. And the, the, the equivalent of the worship band, the church choir, were having a practice. He interrupted the church choir. And he said, uh, excuse me, I've got you two new choir members. And they were like, that is a sick joke. Because they knew those those ladies. And he said, uh, they're saying it's a sick joke. Do you want to say anything? They sang. Guys fell to their knees and they were weeping. Now, some of you, you're looking at me like you're still asleep. I mean, facial reactions sometimes don't give it. I hope you you believe that stuff. I hope it does stir faith. I'm like, Lord, do it. Do it in Bath. Do it in Whitcomb. Do it in Coombe Down. Do it in Lansdowne. Do it wherever you... But, But what they've got to teach us is that they are desperate. How much do you want of God? No one has less of God than they want. And that's a challenge. That's what the, the, the suffering and the persecuted church has got to teach us in the West. That's a voice that we need. Because I'm not saying you are, but I think, you know, we, 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 well, we are in general distracted to oblivion. We're not worshiping, worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping the, at the altar of Netflix and social media. And we give all our time and attention to that. And, and we need to wake up because there's a war going on. There's a battle going on for the souls of our, of our friends, of ourselves, of our neighbors. And he's like, come on, wake up. So that's a bit of context. Maybe next, let, keep going. Just want to mention, next one, next one. I just want to mention that next one. 
and that is a podcast. You are bombarded. We are bombarded relentlessly with bad news. And I want to say, watch the news five minutes a day, not 24-7. 24-7 is deathly because we are bombarded with fear and anxiety and a depressing, hopeless narrative. And so five minutes so you can pray about what's going on and then feed yourself, get into the word. And feed yourself, this is like each week, incredible stories of faith. It, it's, it's beautiful. So Thursday's one that came out was a Korean believer who twice escaped from, uh, you know, from North Korea. Oh, un- incredible story. And they just stir faith and they raise the bar for us. So I think that's one of you. So if you're into podcasts, do get that. Right, that's it by preamble. Now we're going to look at the word. And listen, wherever I go, St. Matt's, you've got your own mission partners. I'm not after your money. Keep supporting your own mission partners. I always say that at start talks so that hopefully, you know, there's no agenda in that. And also, I'm not on a recruiting drive for you to come out to Burundi. Maybe like, good relief on that one. Uh, but what I would love is for you to pray. I still, I'm alive still now. I totally believe because people prayed for me. Uh, one time I got through, 40 people got killed on the road and I got through. I had a guy come to my house with a grenade to blow me up. He'd written me a letter saying he was going to cut out my eyes. I had lots of extreme experiences like that, but people prayed. And the guys out there are saying, can you still get people to pray? So, so you don't have to, but Tim, can you just pass that, that side? Uh, you're already on it, so no need. But uh, if, if you want to, don't sign up if you get too many emails, but if you want to, put your email on and uh, you'll get some of these crazy stories on a regular basis. And you can pray for us, but also you can be stirred in your faith. So pass on if you don't want to. Great if you do. Right, so that's it. That's a, a bit of a, a background. Now I'm going to talk on 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So funny enough, this morning I was, I, was, I was delving a bit into 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in Leicester, which is, talks about the fact that we're, we're just jars of clay, you know. And, and that's to show that his all-surpassing power is his and not ours. So we need to come with humility. And these, this this section we've got, I mean, there's about, you know, there's only about 12 verses. Four of them are absolute humdingers. I mean, they really are. And uh, I'm just going to start with um, a quick story from the Civil War. During the American Civil War, the soldier was granted permission to seek a presidential hearing due to a family tragedy. And he went to Washington he went to the White House, but he was promptly uh, refused entry. He was dismissed, and he despaired of what to do. And he wandered down the road to a park, and he sat down there, what he's going to do. And then a little boy came up to him and asked him what was wrong. And when that older, grizzled soldier explained what had happened, the little boy said, come with me. So he followed this little boy, didn't know where he was going. And uh, the little boy led him uh, back to the White House, and none of the guards stopped them as they walked past now. The guards stood to attention. He took them on a detour around the back. You've got these different various metal-emblazoned guards just like there and as they walked past. And, and, and the soldier couldn't believe what was happening, but he went with it as the little boy led him on. And when they came to the presidential office, the boy entered without even knocking. And the Secretary of State was briefing President Abraham Lincoln who interrupted him and turned to the boy to ask, Todd, uh, what can I do for you? And Todd said, Dad, this soldier needs to, to talk to you. I love that picture. Because what Hebrews 5 verse 16 says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And that is our birthright. 
as followers of Jesus, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And he will show us grace and mercy in our time of need. So I say that as a preamble for the first verse we're looking at, because that's a really beautiful picture. And it's a very comforting picture. But then look at verse 10, which is a bit of a jarring uh, contrast, because it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's very sobering. So look at me, you are going to appear, I am going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is a sobering and quite fearsome context, which is, uh, which, uh, concept, which is why in, in verse 11 it says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. And you know, the fear of the Lord is not a bad thing. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience, says Paul. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in, than in what is in the heart. If we're out of our minds, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Another humdinger verse here, love it. For Christ's love compels us. For I'm convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave their life, uh, for him who loved them and gave his life for them. Sorry, I, I was trying to do that off by heart there. So then, and he died for all, sorry, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this, was, in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. <sighs> Thanks, Tim, for these verses for me. Brilliant. So uh, a few things to draw out of that. First of all, we are in an incredibly privileged position. I don't know if you spotted that, verse 20. Uh, well, well, let's get to that. First of all, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. No more shame, no more guilt, no more hang-ups, no more regrets, whatever. We don't, we don't live under that. We're completely restored. We're made new. I was preaching last weekend in Loughborough, and I was remembering a friend of mine um, who I'd led to Christ, or been part of his journey, let's say. Uh, and it, 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 was, it was brilliant because 
he bounded up to me after the second term, so it was uh, after the Easter holidays. And it's funny, his parents had been praying that he could meet one student at Loughborough that he could relate to, and you'll find it hard to believe it, but I, I had loads of hair back then, and it was all out here like that. And he was a druggie, and he invited me back for a spliff to his house. That's how we met. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, no, maybe, maybe not. not, no longer. Um, and, 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 I, and, and I basically got him along to stuff, and then his father, who had become a a full-on evangelist, this guy, other guy, also called Simon, had hated it and gone into promiscuous sex and deep occultic stuff and, and drugs and heavily involved in, you know, the darker side of Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, his story was quite incredible, but he ran up to me in that summer term, and he did not need to say anything. He was this verse. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And he told me how his father on Easter Sunday with another friend had pray, prayed over him for five hours whilst demons were, came out of him. So it's not just in Africa. He talked about the, a, 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 dun, a, a dragon that was curled around his spine. That was, he felt it unleashed and came out with a sulfuric burp. Now that, you might, that might freak you out. His story was so powerful, it was so real that the next week on the course, James Deere was like, Simon's changed, I want that. He became a follower of Jesus. The next week, Adam Groves like, look at that. That's the power that we've got in Christ. That we don't need to be freaked out by those stories because if you are in Christ, you have that authority and it's a very privileged position. And it says that we've been given, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, you go back to the lecture hall or you go back to your office or you go back to your neighborhood and you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. What an incredibly privileged position. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconcil reconciliation. So we've got the, the ministry of reconciliation. I'm not sure it's that different. And also the message of reconciliation, a verse later. Incredibly privileged position. This powerful message, which I, I've, I've seen lived out in unbelievable stuff in a genocidal era. So I think of Edith, and I've, my friend Edith, beautiful woman now in her 60s. She radiates Jesus. She's so beautiful externally, but her spirit is so beautiful. And I've been and cried with her at the graveside of her husband and three of her kids who were hacked to death. And what happened in 1994 was that she rushed home when it all kicked off, and she was too late for her husband and three kids, but she still had three kids. So, you know, she had six kids in total. So she got dressed, got together a few things, um, and she legged it and tried to get through to Congo. And she came to a roadblock. She was from the wrong ethnic group. She was taken to the side of the road. The guy was, was going to um, kill her and her kids. And she said, looked him in the eye. She said, I'm not afraid to die. I know that as soon as you kill me, I'm going to be with Jesus. And he said, no, God is dead. And I think you can probably imagine in that situation thinking, yeah, God, you are dead. I mean, a friend of mine said, this is where 49 members of my family were hacked to death. Well, Edith prayed, God, if you're dead, I don't want to die, so show me that you're alive. And he stripped her. He's going to rape her first before killing her. And as he stripped her, he found all her money stashed in her bra. So he took the money and legged it, and the other soldiers legged it because they wanted to share the money. She was able to get dressed, get through to relative safety in the Congo. A few months later, when this thing settled down, she came back. She heard that that man who was going to penetrate her, was going to kill her and her kids, was in jail. And these aren't jails like we got. I mean, no jails is a nice jail, but out there, you know, they, there were 7,000 men in a, in a thousand men built for prison. And they were in there, and basically, unless loved ones bring you food, you, you just rotted. And she got permission from the gouverneur, the, head, the, you know, the, the guy who ran the show, the jail, to go and see that man. Now, what did that man deserve? 
I mean, I would have swallowed him in the face. I would have spat at him. So she came in this incredibly charged atmosphere, and she said to him, look, look at me. You told me God's dead. I'm here to tell you that he's alive, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he forgives you, and he's told me to do the same. So I love you, and I'm going to take care of your needs. And as a widow in a country that you know, doesn't have rights, it doesn't have social security or anything, she's taken in eight other orphans and raising them. What a beautiful testimony of someone who's got the ministry and the message of reconciliation. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? Most of us, we can't relate to that. Some of you, if you heard Yudoni, who was a presidential candidate that we were, we're very much, you know, he's one of my best buddies out there. And he came and spoke in there a couple of years ago, shortly before, um, it's the 2020 election. So uh, that was when he came, just before lockdown, I think it was. Um, and, you know, his story was that um, his father, who was a judge, uh, a, a very honorable man, was buried alive, murdered in a pit. So Judah was orphaned from that, and he, he, had a, he had a hell of a time for the ensuing years, but he started a street kids project, and then he got in touch with the man who murdered his father, buried him alive. And they went back as brothers in Christ to preach reconciliation on the spot where his dad had been buried alive. And that, the guy who murdered his dad is now dead. And Judah is sponsoring his kids through school. I mean, how do you do that? I think sometimes forgiveness has got to be supernatural. That's Romans 5.5. 5. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. And I don't know, some of you, you might have some major forgiveness issues. I'm not saying it's easy. But it can't be more major than Edith and Judah is. you know what I mean? And, uh, but sometimes it might just be supernatural. And maybe this evening God wants to release you. Because you are meant to be, we are meant to be ministers of reconciliation. And you can't do that if you're holding on to bitterness and hatred. But God, by his spirit, he could meet with you today. We're in a very privileged position. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So Paul sees that he serves in a foreign land and we are, various uh, epistles will start, aliens and strangers. That's how we're meant to see each other. Don't get too comfortable. Again, I mean, coom down, coom comfort. You know, it's like we're not meant to be that comfortable. We are meant to be aliens and strangers on earth. So Paul recognized, he sees that he's in a foreign land as the representative of the king. And that's what an ambassador is. The king has a message and Paul is delivering that message, as the verse says, as though God were making his appeal through us. And there's so much idea, there's so much richness in this concept of us being his ambassador. So what is an ambassador? An ambassador an ambassador does not speak to please his audience. He speaks to please his king who sent him. An ambassador doesn't speak on his own authority. His own opinions or demands, they mean little. He simply says what he has been commissioned to relay. But an ambassador is more than a messenger because he or she is invested as being a representative. So walking in that authority and honor and reputation. Are you with me? And the message ultimately is verse 21, which is a, a, a gospel nugget of a verse. Look at that. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great one. Memory verse. Let's, let's be people who memorize scripture. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, for me. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right, watch me. Um, this is something I've got to really concentrate on. New Zealand, last Google I did, uh, 28 million sheep, 4 million people. So, you know, approximately, so give or take. But that's seven to one. There's a lot more sheep than there are people in, in New Zealand. doesn't mean everyone's got seven sheep, but it means, for example, my, my cousin, I'm going to go to there, he's got 3,000 sheep. Some people have got 30,000 sheep. If you've got 30,000 sheep, when it's, when it's lambing season, you might have 100 ewes, is it, mummy, mummy sheep, who give birth in one day. Maybe 100 are giving birth out of 30,000. Now, as with, you know, you ladies, as with humans, sometimes track with me, the mummy gives birth to a stillborn lamb. So you've got a live unit here, and it's unit, it's only money, it's not emotional for the, for the farmer. So you've got a live unit and a dead unit here, a mummy alive, a stillborn lamb. And then there'll be other cases where the mother gives birth and the lamb's fine, but she dies in, child, in giving birth. And so for the farmer, he's, in these cases, he's already lost two units. He doesn't want to lose four because a, a living lamb will just next to its dead mum, and it needs milk to survive. And, and here you've got the, the, the living mum who will just die of, actually of a broken heart. But this mum cannot take this orphaned lamb because she sniffs him, and that's not my child. So there is a problem, but there is a solution. And the solution is you take the dead lamb, the farmer takes the dead lamb, and he cuts it open. And he comes to the, the orphan lamb here, and he washes that lamb completely, every part, all over, all over in the blood of that lamb. And now the mother comes along, and she says, that's my boy. I love that. Do you remember John the Baptist, John 1, 29? sees his cousin, behold the, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. 700 years before Jesus, the Messiah came, Isaiah prophesies about he'd be led like, the Messiah's going to be led like a goat, to, no, led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so, you know, Tim, he's quite a godly bloke, but if he hadn't been washed in the blood of the lamb, God would come and sniff him and say, you honk! You minger, you stink. And he'd do that with me and with Nigel and with Sarah and each one of us because we've all screwed up and sin is a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. And Jesus said, if you want to get on your own merits, that'd be Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. None of us can do that. Do I need to convince you that? No, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, once I came to Christ, age 15, notwithstanding loads of cock-ups after that, so there's highs and lows, but that's where grace comes in and God's mercy. You know, before that, he came to me and he sniffed me. I cannot accept you, Simon. But, but when I turned to Christ and I recognized that he, he covered me and the blood of the lamb, when I accepted him, has washed me all over. And now I'm, secu I'm so secure in that. And it's such a great place to be. And if you haven't come to Jesus yet, those two pictures of grace being picked out of the toilet and the lamb, get it, get it and receive it. And those of us that have received it, that is verse 21. And that is the message we're sharing, sharing to a lost world. We're not any better than anyone else, but we are better off because we're forgiven, we're reconciled, and he's committed to us the ministry and, me and message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, verse 20. He is making his appeal through us. You are in a privileged position. 
But that's not all, is it? Because with privilege comes responsibility. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, to those who've been given much, much will be required. I'll take that on the chin. With privilege comes responsibility. So we're, we're in a privileged position, but we've also got a pressing purpose. If I don't pee you off too much. Privileged position and pressing purpose. So back to verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There's an accountability. There's a reckoning that is really heavy, that is really serious. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you. He urges us. Paul urges us because it's urgent. I was once preaching on the Congolese border, still in Burundi, but near the Congolese border. I was preaching on the parable of the ten virgins. Do you remember that story? Those ten girls, Matthew 25, they all had a role to play. They were all invited, but five of them did not have enough oil for their lamps. So when the belated wedding party came, uh, they trimmed their lamps, they woke up, and they got things ready. And the five that didn't have, had enough oil, they didn't go enough off and buy some more. Meantime, those that were ready, they went in, and the door was shut. And it was party time, which is a picture of the kingdom, Right? But then the belated girls showed up and went, hey, can we come in? And they heard this horrific pronouncement, Simbazi, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Well, may none of us ever hear that. Get ready tonight if you're not ready. And some of Jesus' parables are very nuanced and difficult to understand. Others are really straightforward. I think this is one of the straightforward ones. I had three points. Jesus is coming. Nobody knows when. Are you ready? I mean, that is what it's teaching. Anyone argue with that? Jesus is coming. Nobody knows when. Are you ready? That was my point. Anyway, a whole bunch of people chose to come forward and get ready because that's the cultural norm. Um, but I guess some people are sat in the back row saying, no, I'm going to sow my wild oats a while longer, or I'll come to Jesus when I need him, but he's gonna, I don't want him to cramp my style. Please, again, may that not be you. Whatever the case, two days later, I was on my, on my motorbike heading towards that village, Gatumba, and I stopped at a military checkpoint and I said, you cannot proceed any further. There's been a rebel attack, and those guys were getting killed. And it, it hit me like never before, the urgency of our message. Because two days before, they'd heard, Jesus is coming. Nobody knows when. Are you ready? And he came. He came on Tuesday. And the problem is, we're not seeing bombs fall on Bath, are we? And so it's very easy to coast along in, in apathy without the sense of urgency, which I, it was very easy, frankly, for me to live with in Burundi because I couldn't deceive myself that we're living in peacetime. But I see bombs fall all over us up the hill in Coombe Comfort, I've said that a few times. Apathy, destruction, materialism. They just... And, and so that's why we're, as a body, we're, I think we're lacking in passion and we're lacking in gospel confidence. That was what I was talking about this morning in, in, in Leicester, is that we're so on the back foot in this nation. We're lacking gospel confidence and we shouldn't be on the back foot. We've got a fabulous message. We should be on the front foot. Not proud and arrogant because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we come in humility, but we don't come in in apology. We don't tone down the message to make it more palatable, because then it loses the power. That's what the church is doing right now. It's just toning things down. And we've got to preach an authentic gospel. So we've got, we got a privileged position and a, and a pressing purpose. I love William Booth's sense of urgency. He was the founder of the Salvation Army. This was his last speech. Oh, it's decrepit, but fire in his 
belly still in his spirit. He said, while women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go in prison, out of prison, in, out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there's a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of Christ, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. Oh, God, stir me afresh. Stir us afresh this evening to not settle for a domesticated, tame, respectable Jesus. So, if I can do a few more Ps, we've got privileged position, pressing purpose, and an impassioned persuasion. So look, verse, verse, verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Why? Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. These are not words, are they? They're strong, aren't they? Compels us, urge you. I love that verse. It's a key one in the piece. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us, very convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Is it over the top? Am I being over the top? I'm just repeating what he's saying. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So one more quote, one more story. And this is very challenging. So hear it in the context of that we can approach the throne with confidence. And that it's Christ's love that compels us. But this is a quote called, it's a sort of, yeah, it's a quote by, called If by J. Wilbur Chapman. I find it so challenging. He said, if today is the day of salvation, if tomorrow may never come, and if life is equally uncertain, how can we eat, drink, and be merry when those who live with us, work with us, walk with us, and love us are unprepared for eternity because they are unprepared for time? If they who reject Christ are in danger, is it not strange that we, who are so sympathetic when the difficulties are physical or temporal, should apparently be so devoid of interest as to allow our friends and neighbors and kindred to come into our lives and pass out again without a word of invitation to accept Christ? Say nothing of sounding a note of warning because of their peril. If... Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men. Who gave the right to be satisfied with making fishing tackle or pointing the way to the fishing banks instead of going ourselves to cast out the net until it be filled? If I am to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to render an account for the deeds done in the body, What shall I say to him if my children are missing, if my friends are not saved, or if my employer or employee should miss the way because I have been faithless? If I wish to be approved at the last, then let me remember that no intellectual superiority, no eloquence in preaching, no absorption in business, no shrinking temperament, no spirit of timidity can take the place of or be an excuse for 
my not taking an honest, sincere, prayerful effort to win others for Christ. Well, if you signed up an email, you want me to send you these notes and that quote, I just, it's a, it's a reminder for me. And it was, it's so heavy, and I feel such a heaviness in delivering it, which is why I prefaced it with the confidence we can still approach the throne of grace to receive his mercy and favor. But with the heaviness, it goes together of we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give account for what we've done while in the body, whether good or bad. Couple with verse 14, for Christ's love compels me. Do you see what I mean? We hold those together. So last story, and then we'll respond. And this is in a Kenyan village in the bush, and uh, there's a two-story house, and it burnt down in the night. And amidst the screams of the family that were caught upstairs, the whole village assembled, and they tried to put out water from the river, and, uh, and uh, they didn't manage to, and the, 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 the whole family died. They burnt alive. Apart from someone managed to get through at the last and pluck out the baby boy. And the next morning, around the smoldering embers and remains of that house, the whole community gathered. And a heated discussion ensued. Because according to the villagers' worldview, animistic worldview, the, there, there was special baraka, there was blessing in this little baby boy because the ancestral spirits had spared him. And so... Different people laid claim to adopting the baby boy to have the blessing in their house. And the witch doctor's like, oh, there's serious psychic power in this boy. Let me have him. I can, I can nurture that power. But the chief of the village is like, I'm the chief. I'm having him. The richest man in the village said, well, hang on. I've got the most dosh. I can pay for him to get the best education. The neighbor said, well, no, no, no. Hang on. His father had an unpaid debt towards me, and I'll take the, the baby boy in lieu of that payment. And then this nobody, this bottom of the social hierarchy man stepped forward and quite authoritatively said, no, the boy is mine. And they're like, what? I mean, they all knew him. Look, you're a loser. You're, you're a nobody. What could possibly be your claim? And he didn't have to say much. He just opened his hands. And his hands were blistered and burnt and charred. And he said, the boy is mine because I saved him. And Jesus this evening says to you, you're mine. You are mine. His hands aren't blistered, burnt, charred. What are they? Pissed. And he says, you're mine. Because I saved you. It cost me my lifeblood. And so how far is too far when he went that far? And hear the challenge this evening. And he lays claim on your life. And I think most of us have already decided 
to buy into. But if you haven't, that grace is available. And I would plead with you. I would urge you. I'd beseech you. I'd employ you. I'd persuade you. Those verses in there. Because God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you are the, you're the righteousness of God. I mean, what a great message. And then we're ambassadors. So we've got this privileged position that some of us have taken with the privilege of that responsibility. So this privileged position, this, this pressing purpose. And so here's the impassioned persuasion and plea for us to be all in for him. And at St. Matt's, if, if, if we're up for that, we are going to nuke the city for Jesus, not in a militaristic, triumphalistic way, but just with the grace of God. And Christ's love compels us. So can you mus musicians come up? And uh, it's a time to respond. So why don't you stand just for a different posture if you've got the, the physical capacity to do that. You don't have to, but it's just an offering you a change of posture as we've heard these fantastic verses, sobering verses. We are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. A whole lot of the body doesn't want to preach in that verse, doesn't want to mention it. It's cheapening grace. It's, it's fear, fearful. But that's, the gospel has got to have teeth. We are going to appear before him. We can appear, according to Hebrews 5, with confidence before the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done. And it's Christ's love that's going to compel us. If you experience that love, first of all, I just want to pray. If there's anyone here right now that hasn't yet responded to Jesus' offer of an invitation, then you can just say this prayer in your heart. If you've come along with, your, with a mate and you're new to this, this, this is just inviting him in to experience that grace. You're recognizing that he, you, are, you should be his. You need to give yourself to him because he saved you. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming for me. I invite you into my heart. I say sorry for all the things I've done wrong. And from this day forward, I choose to follow you. And if that's you, come and see me afterwards. It's the best decision you've ever made. And for the rest of us, I don't want to manufacture anything. We don't need to drum our emotions. I'm just going to pray this prayer, which is the prayer of Psalm, the psalmist, Psalm, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And then, Tim, Tim, you can lead the rest of the response time. But it's a lovely prayer. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Why don't you open your, eye, your, 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 your hands to God? It's, it was St. Augustine that said, God gives where he finds empty hands. And this is the prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So, Father, you see my hands right now. It's a position of surrender, of humility, of dependence, of openness. Speak, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. May we leave having made some seriously meaty decisions, some resolves because of the ifs, the high stakes. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening.